Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. We've talked in past shows about the existential issues, economic, military and cultural, that China poses for the United States. But it's been unclear to me just what our lines of action should be. For example, imposing tariffs willy-nilly or beefing up our naval presence in the South China Sea seem short-sighted, not solutions. What we should be doing is confronting China across a broad range of economic fronts, while at the same time promoting our own productivity and economic growth. But it's not just a matter of the right actions. It's about how we think about the problems. And our domestic politics prevent clear thinking. With me today is a brilliant man who's done some very clear thinking, and he does have solutions. Robert D. Atkinson is founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Founded in 2006, ITIF has been named the world's top think tank for science and technology policy. Dr. Atkinson coined the term innovation economics, and the New Republic magazine calls him one of our three most important thinkers about innovation. His most recent book, co-authored with Michael Lynn, is Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Uh, you founded ITIF uh, in 2006. What led you to, uh, to, to set that up? Well, the main reason was I thought then, and I continue to think today, that innovation is the most important driver of human progress, of American progress. And there were really no think tanks that were focused on that. It was a sideline or a side thought to most of the other think tanks. Uh, and so I thought there needed to be a think tank that just focused pretty exclusively on innovation and innovation policy in a nonpartisan way. There's good ideas from both sides. But uh, as you pointed out, our politics is making that hard to get that done. So uh, what's striking to me is how much opposition there is to innovation today and how little understanding there is of it. So that was really what our mission is. I want to get to China, but I am interested in what you said about opposition to innovation. It seems like some on the left have given up the idea that growth is important. And uh, I know small is supposed to be beautiful, but who wants to shrink? We right. want to grow. We want to grow. Uh, we don't want to be teenagers our whole lives. We want to be adults. You know, there's some... <laughs> Part of what happens in Washington and in, and in these debates is there, there, these almost these urban myths that this gets boiled under proportion. And one of them is that uh, the average worker has seen no progress over the last 40 years. In other words, we've had innovation, we've had productivity, but the average person got nothing. So why would we bother with that? And uh, this is all pushed, uh, not pushed, but it's origins of Thomas Piketty uh, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in his book. Well, actually, when you really look at the data, from the Congressional Budget Office and others, when you really look at the data, what you find is the average worker has made progress, about 35% increase over the last 25, 30 years. Um, not as much as the rich, but it's not nothing. And so the left, you're absolutely right, the left appears to have given up on growth because they don't think it serves progressive goals. I think that's a huge mistake. Well, we have had some impacts on our growth and impacts on our jobs uh, because of what's happened with China. Sure. And 
President Trump just yesterday at the UN gave a speech, and one of the things he pointed out, which I, he may have sourced you to, for the data, is we've lost 4.2 million manufacturing jobs and had almost $15 trillion in trade deficits over the last quarter century. So what's what, China, what's, uh, where, where do we start with China? Uh, as Churchill once said about Russia, they're an enigma wrapped within a riddle, uh, yeah. if you remember that, and that's somewhat China. Where do we start with China? We start with China with, I think, the simple concept of they're not a capitalist economy. Everybody thinks they're a capitalist market-based economy because they have a lot of private companies. They're not. They're a state-directed economy. They tell the companies what to do. And on top of that, and, and more problematic, is they're a mercantilist economy. It's in their deep DNA. They don't let sort of market forces work. <clears throat> and the problem with that is that they use that to hurt American companies and American workers in the American economy. And so Trump is right. They, they systematically steal our intellectual property. Under the WTO rules, you can't, you can't make market access contingent on technology transfer. But they do that. Uh, massive subsidies. So you look at industries like steel, rail, uh, now, now semiconductors and biotechnology. The amount of money that the government is pouring into that. So when, when our companies are trying to compete against their companies, they have the advantage. They don't have to pay for the, most of their R&D. They get it from us. And on top of that, they just get really cash handed to them by the government to go out and compete with us. And, you know, imagine in the U.S. if we were had, you know, we use it now, what if we had B Corps and C Corps? And C Corps are the normal types. But B Corps, if you're a B Corp, the government gives you a negative tax rate of 10% and also hands out subsidies and also has discriminatory lawsuits against all your C Corp competitors. What about the That's view, China. What about the view that, well, when you get government involved in business, they, they're heavy-handed, it's, it's, it's top-down direction, they're not responsive to markets, uh, they're not innovative. Uh, China doesn't seem to fit that mold. No. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the Chinese leadership learned, they went to school studying what Russia did wrong. And, and what mm. they realized, I mean, China is, is all about, as Orville Schell, a famous China scholar, said in the title of his book, Wealth and Power. That's China, wealth and power. And they understand that to get both of those, they have to have vibrant businesses. So if, if they get too interventionist, they know that they're going to kill the golden goose. So what they do is they give their companies a certain amount of freedom, but then they back it up and they say, okay, we can steal some intellectual property for you. Or, oh, by the way, if you're competing against a foreign company, we can make them give you their technology. Uh, or we can just hand you cash. Or we can cripple your competitors. So they're very astute about how they do it. Well, I think one thing that's not often mentioned is the Chinese elite, the Politburo, many of the leaders, I don't know how many people in the 80 million strong Communist Party there are, they're overwhelmingly trained in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. They understand technology issues, productivity issues, manufacturing issues in a way that our, you know, our lawyers and uh, and uh, uh, other politicians do not. And so they're, they're unlike our bureaucrats in the United States, where they're trained in the, in the industries that they're, uh, they're directing. Yeah, yeah. So our leadership is principally coming from a legal background. And, and the orientation is, how can we set up laws so that they're fair and, and open and just? You're right. Chinese leadership is trained in a technology background. And their view is, 
okay, where well, we want to be in semiconductors, how do we do that? Or we want to be in the most advanced chemicals in the world, how do we do that? Uh, very, very different orientation. You're absolutely right. Well, and they have domestic champions, and they're, they're very specific. The Chinese say we want to end up with 80% domestic share in high-end computer-controlled computer machines, 70% for robots, 60% for big data. I mean, they're not just sort of saying, gee, go west. They're, right. they're, they're, very, uh, right. they're very focused on this. Right, right. And again, what's problematic about that, it, I mean, it would be, be one thing if the Chinese just said, look, we, we, you know, we want to grow our economy, we understand innovation is the way to do it, and we're going to do things like support you know, better science at our universities and increase STEM education, maybe do an R&D tax credit, uh, have strong intellectual property. That'd be okay, sure. Maybe they're competing, we're competing, mm -hmm. it would make us better. That's not what they're doing, though. What they're doing is really systemically cheating in the innovation economy, what we call innovation mercantilism. And you make a distinction between the, the fifth industrial revolution, which is IT and computers and the Internet, and you talk about, and you've done a lot of work on this, in the emerging sixth industrial revolution based on AI, robotics, autonomous systems, and you think they may be gaining a, a lead in that sixth, uh, that sixth revolution. Yeah, what's really important about it, if you go back and you look at, not everybody agrees with this sort of uh, classification system, but if you think about it, how innovation occurs. It tends to occur in these big 50-year waves. So after World War II, it was electromechanical innovation and chemicals. 1890s, it was, it was metals and electricity. 1990s, it was internet. And each time we go through one of these things, the orientation of leadership shifts. So if you think about from the 50s to the 90s, what happened? The U.S., for really from the 50s all the way to the 90s, the orientation was East Coast. So it was East Coast companies that dominated. The biggest software industry in the 1980s was General Electric. And what happened was that we had this new, this new paradigm. That's hard, that's hard to envision. It's hard to that. envision, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a famous story of Bill Gates when he was, at, uh, when he was uh, a young guy, and he was on one of these business associations for software, and GE was dominating. He got so mad, he pulled out, and he created the Business Software Alliance on his own. Uh, but... The point being, each time you have one of these, you have, a, you have a restructuring, an opportunity. And now we're going into a new era around AI, around autonomous systems, around Internet of Things. The Chinese have set their sights there. And, and that's, to me, very, very worrisome. We can't, you know, we can't let them win, essentially, because that's the big new frontier. Well, the real spark for China came, what, in 2001 when they were admitted into the World Trade Organization. Right. And the thinking was, if we let them into the world economy, subsidize them with, uh, in ways that we can do through the WTO. Uh, they'll develop a manufacturing economy, and they can make our, uh, uh, I think, what did you call it, the, the cookie boxes? Or happy the Meal Toys. Happy Meal Toys, and they'll be there, and they'll be satisfied with that. And as a result of being successful economically, they'll develop a liberal democracy, right. and they will become a lot like us. They'll right. enter the world order. Right. Uh, that didn't happen. No, and it was really striking how, I think, how naive most of the elite leadership was around China. And they just assumed that was going to happen because they, in their mind, there's only one recipe for economic success, and it's our recipe. And they said, well, that's the only recipe, and China wants to grow, then they have to use our recipe, which is yeah. liberal democracy, rule of law, intellectual property. Turns out there's two recipes that you can grow, and they've shown that. Uh, and so I don't think there's, I think now most, most 
China followers, most inter inter international trade folks, they understand that that was a mistake, and China's not going to become like us. And you've, you've done some work, uh, I think, with Caleb Foote of your shop that shows that uh, the prevailing wisdom was that the Chinese are not innovative, they're not creative, they're just going to copy other people's things, steal and copy, steal yeah. and copy. Uh, that's not true, necessarily. No. They're showing some signs of real innovation. Yeah, yeah. So you, you look at the company that does the most R&D of any company in the world on a what's called purchasing power parity basis, because their labor costs are lower, and it's Huawei, the big Chinese telecom company. They do more R&D than any other company in the world. Uh, so look at biotech, for example. The, the Chinese filed more CRISPR patents, these are um, patents around uh, gene editing, than the U.S. did. So the, the people underestimate China. Now again, the, one of the big things, China isn't good at everything. They're not, they're not good at business model innovation, for example. We're really good at business model innovation, iTunes and the, you know, the platforms. They're not good at that. But you, know, you don't have to be first to the world to dominate. You can be second to the world. You, know, you can copy. Huawei's a copier. Yeah. And, and now they're an innovator. So. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Dr. Robert Atkinson, and we are talking about uh, China innovation and the emerging threat that China poses to the United States and the uh, sixth generation uh, in, uh, um, technological revolution, industrial revolution. The report I would really direct everyone to, if you get on the Information Technology Innovation Foundation website, is a report they did that talks about 36 indicators of China's uh, scientific and technological progress. So, again, there's this, again, it's this, this really myopic view uh, among the elites, which is, well, there's only one recipe, it's ours, therefore China can't innovate, therefore we don't really have to worry. Well, we went, what we did is we looked at 36 indicators and said, where was China vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. in 2007, and where were they or are they in 2017? And on every single indicator, dramatically shrunk the gap. So on patents, for example, they've, you know, they were here, now they're here. On corporate R&D, they were here, now they're here. Uh, China is actually on pace to spend more on research and development as a country than we are by 2022. They have way more scientists and engineers than we do. Uh, and so it's really a huge mistake to underestimate them. A good example is, is um, semiconductors. You know, they're, they're behind us in semiconductors. You know, the U.S. is the world leader in semiconductors. Companies like Intel and uh, Micron and uh, Texas Instruments, great companies. But the Chinese are putting $140 billion of cash, government cash, to subsidize that industry. Mm. And I don't care how... How, you know, how good you are in the U.S., you know, imagine $140 billion you're trying to compete against that's just free sitting there to your competitors. So I, I think we, again, we, and, and we, we've got to challenge China on, across the board on every single front or else we're not going to win this competition. Well, that brings me to what I mentioned at the outset in the introduction is that we have, a, I think, a kind of an intellectual problem, a political problem, a paradigm problem. It's how we think about things problem. And we've seem to divide the country, as you pointed out, into, into a couple of camps. We think of people as either open border, closed border, globalists, or nationalists. 
interventionist or protectionist. Um, you know, the protectionist people voted for Trump, presumably. The, the open border people voted for Clinton, and that's it. And yeah. they're always going to be yep. beating heads against each other to d decide how to deal with China. Yet you've parsed this into a little different uh, uh, set of categories. You have five schools of thought. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, again, I think the, 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 you know, Bill, you hit the nail right on the head. I think one of our biggest problems is just intellectual framing of these challenges. We, we tend to be in these very Manichaean black-white camps, and it doesn't get, to get us where we need to be. So we argue there's five major political economy camps in the world, in the U.S. today, if you will, uh, what, what we call the, the liberal and conservative neoclassical camp, which are basically free traders. So this would be like people at the Cato Institute, you know, total free trade, why Cato doesn't like what Trump's doing on immigration. In the Cato world, anybody can move to the U.S. It'd be great. So no, no borders, uh, total free trade. Uh, and then you have sort of a, a liberal version of that, say, you know, kind of the Larry Summers version, which is, uh, you know, free trade is good, but we, we might have to have a few parts of government. And then you have uh, the sort of emerging progressive camp, if you will, uh, people like Bernie Sanders, where they really fundamentally don't like globalization because one of the things of globalization is it makes it harder for you to keep these distortions in your economy. Um, you know, you have to compete, and that means you can't uh, just sort of have you know really really heavy-handed regulations all the time because you're competing. So in their world, they would just like to have a national economy, heavy regulations, high high wages, all the like. And then you have Trumpism. And what Trumpism is, I think what people forget, is you have to go back to William McKinley to, I think, understand who Trump really is. So the, the Republican Party before Wilson was a tariff party. It was a small government tariff party. Hmm. And that was the idea. You, you, you had a national economy. You helped your big industries by tariffs, but you had really small government. That's, that's Trumpism. And what we argue is all four of those are you know, they're not really very good guides to where we need to go. They're, they're failures. And so what Mike Lind and I talk about is the national developmentalism, which essentially says, yeah, globalization's here. It's important. We've got to embrace it. But one-sided free trade is not free trade. In other words, if we're open and free and China's closed and mercantilist, that can't be in our interest. And the last point of that is, you know, we have to be smarter about how we help our industries. And then the last thing in the world we need to be doing is saying, well, we're going to pick Ford over GM. Mm. That's terrible. But we do know some of the big industries of the future. And we know the technologies. We know the technologies. We know what they're going to be. We know AI, for example, is going to be very, very important. And so we have to say, how is the U.S. going to compete effectively in, in that those set of technologies? Well, I want to dig in a little more into that, your five schools of thought, because one of the purposes of this show is to sort of teach people, or, and me as well, how to think about things. And if I think about the trade debate, the China debate, the school I'm coming from, I, I call myself a recovering uh, libertarian. And what happened to me was I was pretty much a free trade, and you know, doesn't matter which country produces it, and um, the market will resolve everything, and that was the that was the idealistic world I was in, and then I was asked to give a speech a few years ago about trade, and wandered into this this thing called China, and began to realize they weren't doing that at all, and yet we were, and the people in the United States, the libertarians, uh, have really they, there's nothing they're going to add constructively for how we deal with China. I mean, they they oppose antitrust laws, um, they uh, they denounce.
any aid to government as, as, uh, from government to business is crony capitalism. National borders are an infringement on liberty. Yeah. Um, and if everybody comes into the country, their solution is to abolish the welfare state. Exactly. That'll work. <laughs> that'll happen, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is that the libertarians went so far to promote world trade that the Bush administration's Commerce Department went so far as to hold workshops to assist U.S. corporations to move to China. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the idea was there, well, if we move to China, the company will become more competitive. And that clearly was, was wrong. You know, it's funny, I was on a show once, uh, and I was arguing or debating a guy, and I was arguing for why we needed a better and stronger research and development tax credit. It's something Reagan put in place mm -hmm. in 81. And it's a, basically, if you're doing scientific research, you get a tax credit for it because economists show that most of the benefits from, you know, Apple or GM or whatever, it actually spills over to their competitors. And so they don't get it, and to society. So we need companies to do a lot more R&D. So economists all agree we should do an R&D tax credit. And this libertarian said, oh, no, that's industrial policy. That's picking research over something else. Yeah. I don't, you know, the, when you have that sort of rigid view of how we have to go forward, we're just going to be a, we're going to be at a dead end. Talk some more about progressive localism. What a great word. Great term. Yeah, so progressive localism is this idea that, and we talk a little bit about it in Big is Beautiful, our book, it, 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 a lot of progressives, their world, their ideal world is to have this, you know, everybody's all part of this one big happy family in the world, but we all produce and consume locally. So we buy local, we go to the farmer's market, we buy all our food that was grown within 90 miles. Uh, we've gotten rid of most of the big corporations, and so there are all these little small corporations, little small businesses that produce locally. So if you want to buy a suit, for example, it's made you know, 30 miles away. It's not made 4,000 miles away. Um, and, and, and also that most of these companies are worker-owned co-ops. And the ones that you can't do that for, like broadband, for example, uh, would be government-owned. It would be, it would be a, a municipally-owned company. And, you know, you can laugh at that. You go, oh, my God, can anybody really believe that? But that is a new emerging doctrine, if you will, of many people on the left. Well, a lot of people believe that. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth Warren's basically running on that platform. She's running on more than that, but she appeals to that, uh, certainly to that. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I have to say about Elizabeth Warren, compared to some of the other, Elizabeth Warren actually does have a an attempt to create a strategy to deal with deindustrialization. And, I, and I, I think that's actually where the, you know, Bill, you talked about sort of, you know, free traders are protected. I think the emergent view now is going to be, the fault line is going to be, do you think you should do something to make American produ producers better and greater? And, mm -hmm. and there are going to be people on the left who think that, and there are people on the right who think that now, like Marco Rubio, for example, is in that camp. I think Elizabeth Warren's in that camp. And then there are going to be people on the other side who are just like, no, we'll just kind of do what we used to do and don't worry about it. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here talking with Dr. Robert Atkinson, and we are talking about uh, politics in the United States as a relates to our ability to deal with the threat that China poses. And we're just about to talk about a very interesting book that he wrote last year called Big is Beautiful. One of the issues that we're raising here is that the political politics of the United States are, are uh, broken into these different camps, and progressive localists believe that everything should be a small business. And you've written persuasively in this book that all the innovation, all the good jobs, most of everything we think of as prosperity 
comes from bigger businesses, sure. not small. Could I get it? Yeah. So again, there's this widely held view that if we all worked for small, you know, little businesses, we'd all be better off. There'd be more. There'd be more gender equality and, and, and racial equality and all the like, and less pollution. And, and it's funny when you look at the evidence. You, know, you look at the actual data from the government. On average, again, it's not to say that every company's like this, but on average, small businesses pay significantly lower wages. They hire uh, fewer women. They hire fewer minorities. They pollute more. They cheat on their taxes more. Uh, they don't contribute to uh, corporate social responsibility as much. Uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, if we had the same firm size as Canada, so Canada has much smaller firms than we do, uh, average incomes in the U.S. would be about 5% lower. So a small business economy is a recipe for not being competitive and being poorer. So the third camp that you mentioned, or the third school, is national protectionism. And you point out they're both conservative and left-wing versions of this. And national protectionism, is that what elected Donald Trump? I think so, sure. He, he appealed to that. And, and he <clears> had a <throat> wide-open field because he was competing against, or, you know, if you will, sort of old-fashioned globalists who just assumed that China was like Canada. You know, I mean, we should definitely have passed what's called USMCA. We should definitely have an integrated North American market. I'm totally for that. You know, if we trade with Canada and even Mexico, we're all better off. That's not China. And so Trump was able to pivot on that. And, and, and problem, though, is that you can't build a globalized economy. Sorry, you can't build a thriving economy around protectionism, in part because many, many of these industries need global markets to be able to innovate. So you look at an industry, for example, like biotechnology. It costs $2.4 billion, $2 billion to come up with a new drug. So mm -hmm. if you can't sell that drug around the world, you're not going to innovate. You're not going to put the $2.4 billion. You need to have all of those customers. So we need global integration. But where Trump is right, it has to be level playing field, has to be fair. Do you th so one of the dividing lines is where borders don't matter, and the other side is borders matter a lot, and you need a national identity, and you do need to think yeah. about yourself competing as a country. Yeah. And the national protectionists get that right. Right. But they ignore things like the global supply chain and all the other complications. Right. Which I, th I think we're seeing this in the negotiations with China. It's not like all the widgets are made in China. We're going to slap a tariff on those widgets. Right. They're not going to come in. Right. Our, our manufacturing processes are all integrated. Very much so. Very much so. Have you, are you following what, uh, what Bob Lighthizer is doing, U.S. Trade Representative? Sure. And how, that, uh, how he's working his way Very through that? Very much so. And, and I think the, you know, to give the Trump administration credit, they're the first administration that really has pushed back on China. You know, China rep rep recognizes only one thing, and that's power. They don't recognize negotiation. They don't recognize, well, let's try to work together. They just don't. They recognize power. And Trump has recognized that that's the reality. Now, the question is, is it going to work? And I don't know the answer to that. They also don't really recognize rule of law, no. especially our law, especially no. international law. Right. And you probably have heard that, you know, what they call themselves the Middle Kingdom. Right. And the Middle Kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. And the Middle Kingdom laws should apply everywhere. Yeah. And ours don't count. So, so as, as my colleague and co-author Mike Lind has argued, I mean, I, I, you know, I, think, I agree with Mike. That I, I think we're in the midst of a new Cold War. And it's, it's like the old Cold War, only it's, 
not necessarily militaristic, but it is a it is a Cold War for global influence. And what we did right in the first Cold War, I mean, partly because of um, George Kennan and what's called the Long Memo, he said our our job with regard to the Soviet Union is containment. We're not going to we're not going to invade them. We're not going to destroy them. We need to contain them and we need to fight them on every front. So we fought them in Africa. I don't mean militarily, but for hearts and minds, for influence, for economic success. We're not doing that with China. And that's what we need to do with China. We need to make it clear that there's two models. There are going to be two ways in the world, two, two, people, two groups to lead. And, and we need to be the one that does that. And that's what I'm worried about, perhaps, the most. Well, and you're not fighting a, a, a kinetic war. You're not fighting a hot war. You're fighting a cultural war, an economic an war. An economic war. Across all fronts. Yeah. And, and a war for influence uh, and control. So there are going to be spheres of influence that China wants to extend into. Like we see that now in Africa and some parts of Southeast Asia. And, and I think if they do that, they're going to hurt those countries. Uh, but well, we need to counter yeah, I, that. I was talking with a couple of friends out in our county about uh, Africa. They were born in Africa, immigrated here in their 20s. And they just came back from a trip to Africa. And they said what the Chinese are doing is... is uh, uh, stunning. I mean, yeah. in every country, they're yeah. they're inf infiltrating the infrastructure and yeah. the business, and yeah. Yeah. and then of course they have their, uh, I guess their Belt and Road strategy, and yeah. they're they're helping build ports. I, yeah. I love the, uh, what is it, the, the debt trap that they're getting oh, countries yeah. into. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But where are we? And where are we? We need to be fighting. We need to be working to get those countries well, on our side. Well, well, we are. Where we are is we're we're talking about uh, you know Stormy Daniels or uh, oh, I know. I know. We're, we're a silly country. I know, I know, I know. Our politics are even yeah. sillier. So we're looking inward at the silly stuff. Yeah. We just look at the newspaper every day. Yeah. And Eighty to ninety percent of the articles are about this kind of thing, whereas the Chinese are working on their hundred-year strategy, as as Mike Pillsbury talks about. So let's talk about the two camps that are really the viable ones. The ones that we talked earlier, just they're, they're, there may be passions, but they're not real economic or, or, right. or national strategies. Right. We've had the rise and fall of global ne neoliberalism, as you've called it, um, which was the consensus. Reagan, Bushes, Clinton, Obama. But now we have Trump and Sanders, and they've blown up the idea Absolutely. that that's the only consensus there is. And they see globalization as a force almost totally for the good. For the good. The, uh, the, uh, neo the neoliberals do. The neoliberals do, do absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the point I think you've made is that when we've lost all these jobs, the neoliberals say, well, it's only because, uh, it's, not because it's because of productivity. Yeah. Yeah. And if we just had better schools. Yeah. This is, what Larry, this is what Larry Summers has written. If we just had better schools, that somehow we would not have a trade deficit with China and we'd be, everything would be great. You know, this is, again, one of the more frustrating parts of the debate where I really think the, uh, that side of the debate has really fallen down intellectually. When you really look at the data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the, in the Commerce Department, which is the definitive data on manufacturing jobs and output, when you really understand it, it's very clear that about half of those jobs we lost were due to trade, and most of those were due to China. And those people on that side just refused to do that. And so they just say, oh, it's productivity. So if productivity, so high productivity in manufacturing, if that were the reason we lost 3.5 million manufacturing jobs in the 2000s, why was manufacturing productivity in the 90s higher when mm. we gained manufacturing jobs? 
So again, the evidence just doesn't support their view. But why do they keep saying it? Because if they admitted <clears throat> for even a moment that we lost half of our manufacturing jobs because of trade and globalization, they're afraid that they would embolden protectionism, which they hate. Well, guess what? It's already there because you denied reality. And most people, particularly people in the Midwest who face that reality, they're not stupid. They know what happened. They're not, they're not taken in by this view, it's all productivity. They know exactly what happened. And that's why they voted for Trump. Is this, I, we're, we're talking, I want to talk more about the national developmentism. No. Um, I think we need a shorter term, though. <laughs> <laughs> Developmental. Developmentalism. D developmentalism. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> I needed a translator. Uh, expound, expand on, on what that means. So the idea is that, and, and this is actually where, where President Trump got it right. Yeah, one of the ways he got it right yesterday when he was spoke at the UN, he said the what you should be focusing on as a, as, a, as a national leader is your national well-being. And he's absolutely right. That's not to say you ignore global issues, but first and foremost, you put national interests first. That's not the case. It hasn't necessarily been the case. In, in the U.S. elites, they've tended to think, well, if we advance global interests, that's in our interest. And that's not always the case. The second point of that is this notion that you can't just sort of leave it up to the market. And, and saying, well, the role of government is to make sure we obey the laws and we have good K through 12 education. You know, what people forget is uh, the founders understood that. And so Alexander Hamilton is really the grandfather, the godfather of national developmentalism. Alexander Hamilton said, we're way behind England. And if we're going to be a thriving country, who can, by the way, can be militarily strong so that we're not under the thumb of England and Great Britain, we're going to have to have a developmental strategy. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a developmentalist. He said, we need a transcontinental railroad to knit the country together. We need to have a, a land-grant college in every state to help our farmers and our manufacturers. So there's a long tradition of that. And that tradition has really been lost over the last 25 years, largely because you have these economists who come in and say, oh, the market works great. You know, I worked for a Republican governor once, and one of the things he understood was the market works great, but not necessarily for his state. <laughs> you know, and I, I believe the market works great, but we're not interested in maximizing global welfare. We're interested in maximizing U.S. welfare, and that's the big mistake economists make, in my view. Is there gaining? How do the politics uh, play out here? Because we talked about it's not just a dichotomy: Democrat versus Republican. Is this idea gaining traction on the with Republicans or Democrats? I mean, who is there? A, is there something to be forged? Could we finally do something bipartisan? Very much so, I believe. And China is the, uh, is the instigator of that, if you will. You know, back in the Cold War, you know, there was a reason our politics were much more aligned and less contentious, because we had a unified mission, and that was to not let global communism win. And that brought both parties together, and it led to important things. I mean, go look at back at Sputnik. You know, in the 1960s, the United States government spent more on research and development than every other country and foreign business in the world combined. Mm -hmm. That explains a lot. That explains why we led in semiconductors and the Internet and all that. And, and so to answer your question, yes, absolutely. You see both Republicans and Democrats beginning to reject that old view. I, I look at uh, uh, elected leaders like Marco Rubio from Florida, who's a Republican, uh, Todd Young from Indiana, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, they're all beginning to say, wait a minute, 
what's more important here, freedom or liberty? And I, what I mean by that is we may maybe need to have a little bit more activist government if we're going to keep our freedom, if we're going to keep national greatness, if we're going to defend our country. And they're both, all of those members and others, and you see the same thing on the Democratic side, members like Chris Coons, for example, uh, uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio, who's very liberal, but like Sherrod Brown is talking about, we need a, a national industrial strategy to be able to compete with China. Well, you make the distinction though between traded and non-traded goods, and that you're not talking about doing something that would be per pervasive economy-wide. Sure. Rather, we'd be selecting industries that we would want to be supporting and working with. Right. How would that play out? Well, you know, I, I remember once. Uh, uh, I was debating, uh, I was debating a, a former Council of Economic Advisor in the Reagan administration, and he accused me of industrial policy because I said we needed strong manufacturing, so why don't we have one for our barber shops? And I said, well, because barbers don't, you don't, you don't go to China to get your hair cut. We don't need a barbershop policy. But we could very easily lose significant portions of our advanced industries. So good example, that's aerospace. Boeing is one of the best companies in the United States in terms of high-wage jobs, massive exports, lots of R&D. China has a national strategy <clears throat> to get basically get rid of Boeing and Airbus in China and replace it with what their company is called COMAC, which is a state-owned enterprise that is massively subsidized. Once they get China market, they're going to go to the One Belt, One Road markets and subsidize those. And so you know, they're not going to put Boeing out of business, but they could dramatically reduce Boeing global market share. We could see that in many other industries, biopharmaceuticals, advanced manufacturing, semiconductors. Those industries where we trade, if we lose those, what are we going to trade? Soybeans? Chinese tourists? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the kind of economy we want. We don't want to be an economy, as Alexander Hamilton said, of hewers of wood and drawers of water. The... Uh the, uh, the, the, the folks who uh, believe in just let the market solve all their problems, they also talk about something called market equilibrium and that we're just supposed to do business and compete and the market will sort things out and innovation is going to arise from, uh, from that co intense competition. You don't share that view. No. <clears throat> you know, the, the, there's some good economists who, who, who've studied this. And so what, econ what, what those economists are saying is, well, you don't want to distort allocation efficiency. And so, you know, if you, if you give a little bit of money to this sector, maybe it'll, it'll output will grow a little bit more. And, this will, and, and, and the economy's in this natural equilibrium. Everybody's setting prices based on competitive markets. Everything's working well. Problem is that allocation efficiency gains are very small and what are called dynamic efficiency gains are very big. In other words, most of the advancement of an economy doesn't come from things being in equilibrium. It comes from things being in disequilibrium. It comes from new industries. It comes from disruptors. So, I mean, think about, you know, think about a company like Uber, who's disrupted the taxi market. Uh, Airbnb disrupted. You know, it's, so it's it's disruption that you want. You don't want equilibrium. Equilibrium is, is a death knell. That's the worst thing you could happen in an economy. And so you want government to be number one, getting out of the way, making sure that their regulations and taxes and others don't inhibit disequilibrium and disruption, or what you know, the famous economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Mm -hmm. That's how you grow your economy. But there's a good role for government to help with that process and to support uh, technologies and some other things that would make it so that we can disrupt. I think the other point is that 
in a world of perfect competition, you compete away all the all the excess, all the, quote excess yeah. profits, and so there's nothing left. There's nothing left to uh, yeah. invest in R and D yeah. and innovate with. Right. So you look at a company like Intel. I just read the new biography of Gordon Moore, the, one of the founders of Intel, named it Moore's Law for semiconductors getting better. When you read that book, it's one of the things that's striking is Intel would make pretty high profits on <clears throat> this new generation of chip. But they didn't then give it all to the shareholders. What they did is they took that money and they made another big giant bet. They bet the company every five years at Intel. They took that money they made from being able to make a significant rate of return on those chips and they put it into this next great amazing breakthrough. And that's why the chips today are you know, a million times faster than the chips of 30 years ago. You know, you compare that to the dry cleaning industry. You know, they, they don't make any money, they don't innovate because the margins are too low. So again, it's this mistake that neoclassical economists say that, it, you know, that high margins are a problem. High margins are only a problem in industries that harvest the money and send it back to the shareholders. But if you have high margins and you're reinvesting it in innovation, that's good for the country. We shouldn't be stopping that. Well, and you, you, there's also, we talked about this before we got on the show, this idea we're going to break up Google and, and uh, Facebook and... Uh, Amazon, Amazon, and we're going to do all that. And you've written uh, some scary stories about it, things that have happened in the past with AT&T and RCA and, uh, and what happened when they were forced to give up their licenses. And it really created a, a companies and competitors overseas. Yeah. So pe what people forget about that, we had the same dynamic going on in the 50s. Oh, we're worried about these big tech behemoths. People forget that RCA, Radio Corporation of America, actually interesting story, a company that was created by the U.S. government in World War I because the radio technology was controlled by the Europeans, the Italians in particular, Marconi. So we, the government, encouraged a couple of radio firms to merge, to get scale. And it goes back to biggest people. And that was how RCA came up. RCA had the um, color television patents and under an antitrust ruling, they were forced to give those away to every American company. And so they used to license that to Zenith. They, they never were, they wouldn't hoard it. They would license it to their competitors. Now they had to give it away for free. And so keep their licensing revenue up. They licensed it to, guess who? Sony. The Japanese. The Japanese. <laughs> so much so that David Sarnoff, who was the CEO, won the order of the, you know, whatever, some, you know, the order of, the, of Japan, the Rising Sun order, because he had done so much for the Japanese economy. Same thing with Xerox. Xerox was forced to give away for free all of its patents, all of its blueprints, all of its drawings, for free. And guess who got those? Ricoh, Canon, all the Japanese copier companies. And, they, and within five or ten years, they took half of the they took mar Xerox market share in half. And that was all done because oh, we don't want big companies; they have too much power. And I think we risk the same thing today. If you look at the companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, in the Five of the top 15 companies in the world in R&D are American internet and software companies. I mean, they're investing enormous amounts of money. Again, what's the problem? If they were taking the money and just lining the, their pockets of their shareholders, but they're reinvesting that money. Where is the, where is the Trump administration on, on uh, antitrust? Uh, I think the Trump administration, they're looking at this. I think the politics the, is, is, is this pressures them to look at this, they're, they're investigating. I would be hard-pressed to really believe that they're going to engage in any sort of serious action, particularly breakup. 
Now, that could change very much so depending uh, if the Democrats get elected in 2020 and who's the nominee. One of the things that I think a lot of Democrats are running on is this notion that what Robert Reich, a famous liberal iconoclast, a, a pundit now, he's, he's, he's saying what the Democrats need to do is focus on pre-distribution. And what he meant by that is redistribution is things like, you know, we'll have a higher minimum wage or we'll have better welfare payments or free education, better health care. What Reich is saying, we need pre-distribution, which is if we could reduce corporate profits, then you'd have lower prices and people would be better off. And so that's his whole point. And, and one of the good cases, he and others use the airline industry as an example of that. Well, we've written about that in our book. And interesting, in the airline industry, their profits are below the average profit average for the, for the you know, Dow Jones. And the, their uh, investment rates are among the highest in the, in the U.S. Their productivity rates are among the highest. And their price declines are among the fastest. Mm. So why is that a problem? So a lot of the anti-monopolists or the, what we call neo-Brandeisians on the left, they just want to break up big companies, even if the big companies are doing everything we want them to do. Invest in capital, reduce prices, and drive productivity. The, uh, you mentioned Marco Rubio. He's put out a, a long report on uh, dealing with uh, the China threat. Uh, what, what's the gist of that, and how does that, how's that playing out politically? So, you know, Rubio, obviously he ran uh, for president uh, against uh, Donald Trump. Um, he has really, I think, tried to distinguish himself and, and this new camp uh, around saying to Republicans, look, we've got to be focused on competitiveness. We've got to be focused on the China threat. And that means, you know, bucking some of the old libertarian doctrines. So, I give him an enormous amount of credit for fresh thinking and new ideas. He, and the last thing in the world, Marco Rubio, is a big government regulator. I mean, he's not that. He, he respects business. He respects markets. But he also has the insight, which is correct, that you know, we need to do more if we're going to compete with China, and we have to be able to win that fight. What's interesting, though, Bill, you, know, you talked about being a recovering libertarian. The biggest line of attack or, or source of attack for Senator Rubio has been some libertarians who say he's selling out the Republican Party. I think that's a huge mistake. I don't think at all that's what he's doing. I think he's modernizing the party for a new era, uh, just as the Republican Party has done consistently over the last century. Yeah, he was he was attacked by I guess Veronique, my buddy Veronique de Rougy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was. Uh, yep. I, I watched that. I watched that. Read that with with great interest. Yep. Yeah, he's taken a lot of heat for this. Yeah. You know, and it just it boils down to this point. You know, I, a lot of libertarians they. They can't distinguish between sort of, you know, light touch, important uh, strategic government help with, you know, heavy-handed Gosplan Russian socialism. I mean, for them, it's all in the same bucket. And that, to me, is just a failure of thinking. There are certain things the government can and should do, like an R&D tax credit. It's pro-market, pro-innovation. Mm -hmm. That's not socialism. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm talking with Dr. Robert D. Atkinson, and we're talking about industrial policy, China, and how we, how we progress in America to deal with the, uh, with the threats. And it turns out we're a little bit like Charlie Brown mode. We've looked at the enemy, and it's us. Absolutely. <laughs> we can get out of our own way politically. One of the things that I think is driving maybe Marco Rubio, a friend of mine, Mike Needham, ran Heritage Action, and he's now his chief of staff. And one of the things that our economic policy has done in the last 50, 60 years, focused on supply side, 
is we focused on consumer prices and we focused on efficiency and we focused on basically having open markets globalism, but we didn't focus on the people working in the factories. We didn't focus on people. And as a consequence, we've hollowed out a lot of that. Right. And I think he's, I think they're striking a political nerve with this that you've been talking about. Yeah. But I've, I've been trying to formulate in my mind what a what a what an economic policy or what an economic theory looks like that explicitly considers uh, the workers or the consumers or the people when most of our supply side demand curves are based on uh, prices and uh, of, of things and services. Yeah. yeah. So you know, again, <laughs> there's this view that you're either a producerist, which is really what the Chinese are. If you look a at producerist. The, they're producerist. I mean, they they okay. they, they, they immiserate their consumers. I mean. <laughs> They don't care what they're, you know, they drive their dollar down, their, their, their currency down. <clears throat> they tax people way too much to subsidize their company. They're total producers. And you think about that on one side, and we're total consumerists on the other. The only thing that matters in the U.S. is consumer welfare. If you can make that widget five cents cheaper, move it offshore, uh, it doesn't matter. The reality is you've got to do both. You've got to think about both. Both consumer welfare and producer welfare are an important component of a successful economy. We've gone too far over to the consumer side where we just, you know, we just completely ignore producer welfare. And by that, I mean the worker welfare. Uh, and, and so Oren Cass, who's a, ran uh, Romney's, uh, he was domestic policy advisor on the Romney campaign, has an excellent book called The Once in a Future Worker. Yeah, I've and, read it. We've had him on the show. Yeah, Terrific book. Excellent point that we've just ignored worker welfare and in place put consumer welfare. And so that has to, again, that equilibrium has to go back to the middle. Just like on free trade, you know, we, we have to come back to the middle on, on many of these things. Well, he's taken a lot of heat for that as oh, well. Oh, he has. He has. <laughs> I'm not so sure we shouldn't rename industrial policy. We, need we a, should. What, what, what's, your, what's your term for it? Uh, a bunch of terms, innovation policy, competitiveness policy. I think we need to drop the industrial part. No, it totally. sort of harkens back to... Yeah. Uh, Old... 30 factories making metal. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Monopoly. Monopoly. <laughs> Guy with that hat. So let's swing back to, uh, to China and what, what are some of the specific things we can do to deal with China today? Sure. What, what's in our arsenal now to, uh, to address their, uh, their aggression? Well, there's two things we've got to do with China, and Bill, you alluded to this at the beginning. <clears throat> We need, to, we need to do a lot better job at home supporting our companies to compete with China. <clears throat> and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so if all we do is try to constrain China, <clears throat> it's not going to be enough. But if all we do is work at home, like people like Larry Summers says, you know, improve K-12 education, that's not going to be enough either. You've got to do both. So what do we do on China per se? Uh, there's a number of different things we need to do, but one is um, we need to pressure them to roll back some of their worst mercantilist practices. And so, you know, one of the things about this is in the, in the trade community, they're based upon rules-based trade. They, well, you know, as long as they obey the rules. The problem is there are no rules in China, and, and the rules in the WTO don't really constrain China. What we need is results-based we need to, number one, focus on a results-based approach to China. And here are the results we want, and they're all completely measurable. One is no more cyber theft. We know exactly when the Chinese come in and steal our, our uh, the NSA and others in the intelligence community know that. No more cyber theft. 
No more forced technology transfer. No more forced joint ventures in China and massive reduction of their subsidies. These are all measurable things that we could do, and we need to hold them accountable for that. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Uh, the Trump administration has used tariffs as a way to do that, and maybe they'll be successful. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Uh, I'm tariffs are tough. I'm skeptical they're yeah. going to be successful. Yeah. What we argue... I, I view the tariffs as just a way to get their attention. It does get their attention, but I don't know that it's enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was co-chair of this U.S.-China experts group in the Obama administration, the U.S.-China innovation group, and I was in a meeting with a high-level Chinese official <clears throat> in Beijing, part of one of these delegations, and I was asking him about uh, the WTO, and he, and he basically said the WTO <clears throat> for us was a get-out-of-jail-free card, because prior to the WTO, America could do whatever they wanted against us, and when the WTO constrained you more than us, he said. And then he, I said, well, aren't you worried about us putting pressure on you? He said, no, I'm not worried about the G2, what he meant was China. I'm not worried about the G20, because there's 19 other countries, and we play each other off. What I'm worried about is the G3. I said, what do you mean? He goes, what I really what keeps us awake at night is Europe and America ganging up on us. Hmm. And I think that's what we have to do. We've got to get, the Germans are concerned about this, the French are concerned about this, the Japanese are deeply concerned about this. I think we need to build a global alliance, number one. And number two, we have to make the case, which unfortunately Trump has not made <clears throat> adequately. China is playing not by the rules. We need to get everybody to understand that around the world so that they're on our side. And when you get Xi Jinping going to Davos and getting applause for being a globalist, give me a break. I mean, How recently was that? That was about a year and a half ago. Wow. That was after he declared himself president for life. Yes. And, 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 and the, the Davos man went there and they applauded him. Oh, thank God Trump, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is a globalist and Trump is a protectionist. That was an utter failure on our part to allow that to be, that, that message to resonate. Uh, Xi Jinping is the farthest thing from the globalist. What, what globalization means for him is dominating the global economy. The Middle Kingdom. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. That's, that's, we're in charge of globalism. We're in charge, we're in charge, we're in charge, charge of everything. That's globalism. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We just got to define the term. Yeah. It <laughs> didn't, didn't define the term the right way. You know, but, uh, yeah, President Trump is doing a lot of the right things, I think, on trade, but uh, he's not very good at building a consensus with their European partners on, no. on how to deal with China. That's the one thing that we're really missing yeah. because they all are dealing with the same issues. They absolutely are. And uh, When he said that Germany is a bigger problem in international trade than China, that was a huge mistake. Well, he says many things you wish you could say. I just ta just take that back. Take that back. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. Delete it from the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that was such a problem, besides, number one, besides it's yeah. wrong. I mean, Germany, Germany fundamentally, I mean, they don't cheat. You know, they compete they compete really well. They don't cheat. China cheats. Um, the second thing is, why would we want to alienate the Germans? The Ger we need the Germans on our side to fight the fight, just like they were on our side in the first Cold War. So uh, when can we get you nominated to be the next Secretary of Commerce or, uh, <laughs> or maybe State? <laughs> we've got to wrap up here, but one of the things that we'll, maybe we can deal with in a future show is that we've been so balkanized in the government. State Department doesn't talk to commerce, doesn't talk to defense, and yet we need a unified approach to this if we're going to be successful. Yeah, I, I remember once that, uh, an effort they called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, the SNED, and I was in one of these meetings, 
And I watched the Chinese delegation. It was a day-long meeting. Every single Chinese person made the exact same point. It was almost like if you deviated from that, they wouldn't let your kids into college or something. I mean, they, <clears throat> it was pretty clear everybody was on message. And I watched the, watched the U.S. teams come in, you know, from Treasury. And all a different message. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, I understand how hard it is for any White House to get message discipline because the agencies are... But, you know, one of the things that we could do, for example, is have a... Uh, a much stronger, I mean, one of the things we've called for is a, a much stronger National Security Council focus on economics and technology. National Security Council historically has been focused on military threats, not on economic threats. That's something a new administration could and should do and, and really try to bring discipline uh, to all the agencies around that one core direction we have to go. Dr. Robert Atkinson, thank you. Thank you, Bill. This has been fascinating. Um, I wish we had more time. Uh, I hope you'll come back. I'd be happy to do it. We've got a lot of, uh, lot of other things to, to deal with. Uh, that's it for now. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll, use, we'll see you next on The Bill Walton Show. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.